Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the MedTech Impact Podcast, where you get to hear from leaders and innovators who are shaping the future of medical technologies. I'm Kyle Cruz. And I'm Richard Meekeljohn. And we're your hosts of the show. Great. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Don Hawthorne, president of GTM Hawthorne, our consulting business. And John, thank you for joining us today. Please share with the audience some of your background. Sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, I have been in the life science industry for 39 years, about 17 years uh, spent in Silicon Valley, and then the most recent years spent in New England. And I have uh, worked in or with 48 companies in the industry and have held 11 C-suite positions along the way, including six CEO roles. Amazing. So just a little bit of experience I'm sensing there. Um... And again, I know, Don, you've been heavily involved with our impact program and you come in and you deliver our final session, which is all focused around go-to-market strategy. Um, and I wanted to kick things off by saying you've written this fantastic article, why are there not more great companies? And I feel like that frames today's discussion so well. So please tell us a little bit more about this. So the, the process of thinking about that really began 26 years ago when I moved to New England. And I became what I have labeled a contract operating partner for the better part of a decade with the life science uh, equity investor community here. And what that meant is that they asked me to go in as uh, to lead a number of their portfolio companies. And they, they were either okay, generally speaking, but needed to improve some performance, or in some cases, things were worse and we had to do more serious restructuring type work. But what it the genesis of this article's question and title really began as I was reflecting over those years, what did those companies do or not do before I joined? And that got them to a situation where they were in a difficult position overall. And then what did we do once we were working together to change the trajectory? And this led to a, a really looking at, you know, you come in, you challenge the status quo, you know, how, how do you uncover the blind spots that they were not paying attention to? And it was really then, in, to really get more precisely to your question, what happened, the Steve Jobs quote, you know, back uh, from 2005 Stanford commencement address, he said, you know, you can really only connect the dots looking backwards. and and so what I ended up doing in writing this article is I said, look, that's the question, which is why are there not more great companies? And what I what the subheadline was, was, well, it's certainly not for lack of executive ambition or intelligence. It's not for lack of investor capital. It's not for lack of technologies. And it's not for lack of ideas. Something is missing. And what I've determined over the years, what's missing is getting go-to-market properly understood, right. So what, that go-to-market, you know, what then what does that mean? Like, tell us more about what that strategy, I guess, looks like, that ideal go-to-market strategy, and what were you seeing there? So this is, it's actually a great question because there's not a commonly shared understanding of what go-to-market means. And that's part of what I think is the confusion. So go to market in its conventional phrase 
is essentially the same as commercialization, mm -hmm. which is what are you doing in the six to 12 months before product launch and then continuing thereafter. And my argument is that if you're only starting to think about go-to-market issues, then at that point, you've likely blown it. Because what you haven't done is you haven't proven a value hypothesis. Like what are we giving to customers in a value proposition? What's therefore the product market fit before you're rushing in to try and do sales? And so I define go-to-market as three categories. Product market fit, which is are you offering something that customer, a value proposition that customers are in desperate need for? You have a business model fit. You have a profitable, scalable business model where you're retaining enough of the value that you're creating for the company's benefit that allows you to sustain the business. And then organizational fit, which is really then, you know, how are you building a culture inside the company where you're placing value on the efforts of what people are doing and how you work together as a team? It's fascinating. Well, I mean, yeah. honestly, Don, I think you're bringing a, a, a great question again, Kyle, but like, you know, you're bringing so much depth to this particular topic because, you know, I can tell with that array of books in the background, it's not just experience, there's been a lot of in-depth research that's gone into this as well. And so I, for startups, where are you seeing these regular tripping up points? You know, what are the mistakes that are very common? So actually, I'm, I'm going to riff on the book comment for a moment, because part of what I did is I had all of these operating executive experiences over the years. And that's the broad lens through which I look at it, because I've sat in their chair, I dealt with their issues, I understand the pressures and perspectives. And then part of what I did in recent years is I went and I talked to a bunch of people, you know, studied, explored possibilities and began to pull some thoughts together. So in terms of what the companies, startups and others uh, tend to have as vulnerability points, the classic problem is, you know, you get on the phone with them and they tell you all about their technology. And they tell you about their features and the benefits they envision delivering. Actually, they start with features. And then they think they're being really sophisticated when they mention benefits. And like, nobody cares. You know, the, the, there's one person that actually wrote, you know, nobody cares about your company. Nobody cares about your technology. What they care about is do you help them get a job done better than they otherwise could do? That's the point where you have created a potential customer. And that's the definition of why a company exists. So what do you think it was then, you know, uh, or what do you think it is, I guess, looking at these early companies, especially in life sciences, because, you know, obviously there's so much kind of development work and clinical work that's being done uh, in those, you know, early kind of stages of the company. And at that point, you know, that's typically when, um, you know, some sort of commercialization officer or, or some sort of marketing expert is, is a part of that in kind of identifying and seeing, okay, here are the challenges that these patients or these doctors, these hospitals, what have you are experiencing today, right? And they're clearly building a case to that. You know, and what you're saying is they're too focused still on the device, on the drug and what it's doing. Maybe I'm using that as an example because you come from life sciences. Um, but, you know, uh, but then when they 
get their pro when they're bringing it to market or it gets approved and they start selling it, they're focusing. You're saying more on that that product than really the problem maybe in the healthcare system or the real problem and 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 what that solution looks like to address that problem. And hey, here it is. Exactly. So so we just in a moment ago talked about what go to market is. It's the three fits: product, market, business model, and organizational fit. The the second critical thing that frequently gets missed that really gets at what you're raising is that go-to-market done right in the most successful companies starts way earlier than most people realize. For example, I have some friends that worked at Genentech in the early days. I knew others that worked at Abbott Diagnostics way back, uh, even decades earlier. And what those companies and others do that have gone on to great success is they married a marketing person with a tech product development technologist at the very beginning when there was a raw unproven technology and an unvalidated hypothesis about an unmet market need. And that there was, I mean, literally the person I knew from Genentech described how her cubicle was next to the technologist's cubicle. And there was this tug of war dialogue that never ended until you either killed the project because it wasn't going to become a product or you retired the product. And that's, that's the magnitude of the seriousness that so many startups get wrong. They don't start thinking about the tug of war dialogue requirement at the very beginning. Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting point too. And I mean, I would imagine you know, and thinking about all the companies that have gone through the impact program and where they are in the early stages uh, in any early stage company, Richard, you know, especially um, that's those are really some incredibly valuable points. Yeah, no, absolutely, Kyle. I think it's something, again, where, you know, we obviously encourage the companies to come in having done already the customer discovery part. But I feel either that's sometimes missing or has been glossed over. And to your point, Don, I think like a lot of assumptions get made. I know this is something we briefly touched on before, but maybe you could talk to you a little bit more about where you see assumptions and sort of the, the problems around that. Yeah, one of the best things I've read over the years was by an investor in Silicon Valley named Mike Maples. And what Mike said was that startups that, that are onto something, you know, they, don't, they have almost no resources, they have no way to really have a competitive advantage other than what the successful ones do is they go into the future, they gain an insight that they perceive will be held, held true in the future. They bring it back to the present and then they act on it. And what they do is they, by doing that, he, he said, you know, that's the one thing that gives them a competitive advantage and buys them time when no one else, nothing else about their company's existence actually gives them any advantage because, you know, little cash, small company, you know, up against Goliaths and so forth. But to your point about customer discovery, I would actually argue, as does Maples, insight development needs, which is that going into the future point, needs to precede customer discovery because it's the insight that you're taking out to test them with potential customers. And then to the assumption side of things, I, 
you know, again, to go back to why are there not more great companies, the if you think about the board of directors and the management team, now I've sat in endless management team meetings over decades. And one of the most striking things that I've observed is how infrequently the management team describes explicitly its assumptions about its business. You know, who are our customers? What's the value proposition we're going to What are the embedded assumptions underneath that? What are the embedded assumptions behind how we're going to actually deliver that product or about the financial model related to it? And so what ends up happening is they, they proceed blithely along and, you know, all these assumptions are sitting there, oftentimes unarticulated. And then there's this, oh, my God, something's wrong. And it's because they didn't call out and go out and test and validate an assumption they should have done when it would have been cheaper, faster, easier earlier in their life. And so, you know, I've thought long and hard about the board of directors, investors, management team governance issue. And one of the things that I've never heard anybody actually say this, and so this is one of my things I pushed a lot more now, and that is that management teams should do that explicit calling out of assumptions and then regular testing of. Investors, before they ever put a dime into a company, they put together an investment memo for their partners. And that investment memo has a section that calls out the assumptions of what has to be true for this to be a successful, you know, high IRR kind of deal. They almost never share that with the company. I'm going to suggest that what they ought to do is they ought to blend those two sets of assumptions, force management to do it, share it from the investors, and turn that combination document into a regular quarterly board meeting review. Which assumptions did you, the management team, review and make progress on in the last months? Did you validate, since our last meeting, did you validate anything? Did you confirm something is wrong and we need to make changes? Now, think about that. So I, I don't want to rush past that conclusion. I, that would be a really novel and different habit to have at a board meeting level. And it, what, what it does psychologically that is incredibly important is, you know, governance requires that a board not run a company. They're not supposed to. They, by definition, they're not going to know everything. And so what ends up happening, because management team doesn't like to deliver bad or discouraging news, you know, the good news is just around the corner. We'll wait to tell them that we've recovered from this challenge once it's behind us. All those sort of natural human behaviors. But if you have those kind of assumptions and review sections during at least part of the meeting of a board meeting, what you're doing is you're going beyond the, uh, the PowerPoint that's just sort of, hey, you know, we've got this, you know, here's this, here's that activity and this activity. And what you're doing is you're sharing your tangible learnings in the moment with the board. And therefore, you all can assess, is this going the way we think it should be going? And, and if you're catching it by definition sooner, which means you can act on it without severe consequences, potentially. And then what that translates into is you just overcome this board governance challenge, which is instead of having to tell the board that it really bombed, you've been bringing them along on the journey. And it's the journey that then allows you to address issues real time.
And, and I, th I think that is a huge part of how companies could help build more great companies. Well, and amazing, Don, that was just absolute fire right there. Loved every piece of it. Um, and I don't know about you, Richard, but I'm very interested. I mean, you talk about addressing assumptions early and often, right out the gate, right when you start in the business. I guess what's a kind of, can you share kind of like a, uh, like, I know each different, each company is going to be different, but like, how do you approach addressing assumptions and how do you focus on determining whether or not they're real, right? How do you do that so early on? So there's, there's some great tools out there. And one of the best thinkers on assumptions and assumption mapping is a guy named David Bland. And David is as talented and bright as he is modest and you know, gentlemen. And so what he does is he lays out a two by two and he describes that in the upper right-hand quadrant, you, you put the assumptions there that are most critical to the company's success for which you have the least amount of evidence. So the, the axes are on one hand, minimal evidence to lots of evidence. And on the other hand, it's critically important to not so important. And so that's what you're doing. So you know, you have to just take the time to really think about it and and to build on some of what he and others, uh, Alex Osterwalder's been part of the testing business idea activity. They wrote a book together. And what they talk about is desirability. So, you know, what about it is going to be appealing to the marketplace? And they call that the front stage of the theater. The backstage of the theater, to, and this is riffing more on the business model uh, canvas, the backstage is what, what do you have to have in place to deliver on that? So what are the assumptions there? And then finally, there's the viability assumptions, which is, uh, you know, what's the financial picture look like? And not to be left out, there's the, the external environment, which is, is the marketplace ready for what you're doing? Uh, and sometimes that's no small factor in the picture. So what you're doing is you're you're asking yourself the quest questions about those particular topics, and and you just you just brainstorm until you get it and get it right. And and you know then you so so the first thing you do is you get the assumptions out in those three four primary categories, and then you map them into this two by two that I was describing. Mm -hmm. And then do you use that quadrant? to then identify kind of, okay, um, if we don't know enough about this assumption and we're trying to figure this out, you use that to kind of lead you, direct you. That's your compass. You're kind of looking now at maybe hospitals and doctors. Maybe you have to talk with people from the FDA. Maybe you have to talk to other investors that have experience in those markets, I guess. It depends on what, what part of the quadrant you're looking at, but is that, does that, is that at all accurate? So it, it's partially so. Uh, I mean, you're absolutely right that you got to turn your outside your focus outside uh, the four walls of your company. I mean, it's it's a broad riff on Steve Blank's thing about you know you got to get out of the building. I mean, I I've been at this long enough that I remember when I was getting praised for writing this really good business plan. You know, back in my Silicon Valley years. But you know, as we subsequently learned, business plans are really only work for existing businesses when you have predictable, when the pre the future is likely to be a variation, at least for a while, on what the past has been. So when you're dealing with uncertainty, you have to come up with experiments 
that are going to do it. Now, where I tend to favor starting is more of a looking at customer needs through a jobs to be done lens, which is, you know, you, and, and this was one of the great ahas for me in this evolution I've been on is that, you know, in the past, I'd come up with this really cool script and I'd go out and I'd ask the questions on that script of various third parties. The problem is that that's my perspective. And I'm trying to understand customers' perspectives, but I'm essentially forcing my agenda on them by the way I'm scripting out the conversation. So the better way to do it, because the other problem is that when you start asking them hypothetical questions of, you know, would you do this or would you do that? You're you're asking them to make stuff up. So what I will do is I will ask them, tell me about your job. You know, if you're an oncologist dealing with a cancer patient, you know, what's the first step at, you know, when you, you establish the relationship with the patient and how does it progress where the core job is eventually to treat the cancer and then to follow that up with monitoring and other kinds of activities in the back end. But there's an entire job And what you have to do is that even if the core job, for example, is a drug or it's a diagnostic, may be be primarily focused on that execution step job in the middle of the job map, there are related jobs before and after that are really important to understanding all the steps and where potentially the problems could be. So what I'll do when I'm asking someone in an interview is I'll say, okay, let's take the last 12 or 24 months. Tell me about some of the experiences you had dealing with patients, like real case studies kinds of job discussions. You know, where did they, what what happened? What, What could have gone better? Where did you have problems? What would you, problems would you like to have eliminated that really were problematic? What kinds of things would help it go better, would allow you to do more and better treatment activities of the patients? So you're both removing imperfections and you're helping new things get done, imperfections on existing and new things. So those become a set of desired outcomes mm. that, the, in this case, the oncologist would like to experience. And then you can rank those. Okay, which ones are most important and least satisfied? So can can you begin to feel that what you're doing is you're really getting your arms around what the unmet customer needs are? And that, when you think about go-to-market, is a huge starting point. Mm -hmm. And from there, you can get certain assumptions and go out and test things further. But what you're really doing is you're beginning to understand what you understand your customer. And this is, you know, in this article that uh, that Richard mentioned at the beginning, I, this was one of my ahas in the last year or two. And I guess, you know, we all knew it implicit, know it implicitly, but it's never actually, I had never actually heard it said. It goes like this. You want to build a great company. What's the definition of a great company? Well, it's a company that has dominant valuations and dominant operating performance. Who are the players that actually determine your valuation and operating performance outcomes? It's investors, corporate partners, and customers. And management teams have no control over any of those three groups. 
And that means executives are in the persuasion business. And that, and over things over which they have no direct control. So the question then becomes, well, how might you persuade? And I'm gonna argue that the missing link in many, many executive thought processes are that they don't think about, if, if they thought more about go-to-market strategies, beginning at the very beginning, as I mentioned earlier, and then having these three product market fit, business model fit, organizational fit, and look at it as a stochastic dynamic process of, you know, you're heading out on a journey where there's nothing certain and there's no guarantees. And you go out there and you just start digging and mm -hmm. really looking for ways to, you know, gain insights and then do something that's different. Mm. Yeah, that's really uh, interesting. I, and, and Richard, I definitely want to turn this over to you, but I just to kind of comment uh, as a follow-up comment and um, on all of Don's points there. Um, I think though, the way that you posed on, you know, I, I mentioned, hey, you know, maybe you go out to the hospitals, you talk to the doctors, you use the oncologist as an example, right? And the questions though, maybe that life science company would be asking them is, is all about them and their experiences there. It's got nothing to do with, you know, the drug, the, the your, your, their, right, drug or their device, their product, their technology, whatever it is, right? And I think that's really huge. Um, and this is a great point because I think, um, a lot of marketers, and I've probably been guilty of it myself, you know, have always been so hung up on the actual product and understanding their experiences around that specific product. And, you know, okay, there could be some value there, but really understanding it holistically, you know, how engineers go about their, you know, jobs day to day at these medical device companies, right? And, and how each people and throughout each department, each team, also what those experiences look like, maybe not having to do with anything that we build and make. But, you know, it's really interesting because that's where you identify the real, their real challenges, their real problems. And then you can tailor that your product and create that solution that fixes those problems. But it's all. Yes. It's, you just really nailed something because yeah. part the right mindset is what problem am I solving for which customer? Mm -hmm. And what many, many companies do when they begin with talking about their technology is their or their product, they're focused on the solution. And solution it doesn't matter. When you're talking about a customer's job to be done, it's solution agnostic. What they care about is the ability to do job. And that goes back to what I said earlier. Nobody cares about your company, your product, your technology. What they care about is, can you help me get my job done better, faster, cheaper? That's it. Brilliant, Don. Honestly, you're covering so many things here that um, I think any founder can gain value from. You mentioned earlier about tools. And I know there's a lot of tools out there. And you know, you've talked about Alexander Osterwald, who obviously best well known for the business model canvas and obviously the Clayton Christensen's jobs to be done, but kind of what's your approach and your learning and the evolution of this, you, you know, what have you been working on towards that goal? So, you know, I mentioned earlier that I've been a long, long time operating executive and part of what I'm, I'm conscious of is that I don't think there have been a lot of tools that are succinct enough 
big picture enough, but specific enough to be value to a, valuable to an operating executive. I mean, for goodness sakes, they're busy. He or she is doing constantly doing things under all sorts of pressure points. They don't have time to go, you know, look at all that information in the back. They they just want to know something. Okay, how can I have some guidance? Is there a roadmap somewhere that can guide me that's straightforward enough that I don't have I can do the right stuff, but not have to think about it in terms of am I am I missing something and so forth. So what what I ended up coming up with, there's some great tools out there. And you know, we've talked about some of the names of the really talented people that have come up with great ideas. But I came up with a GTM roadmap. And it's a three by three matrix. And it takes those three principles of product market fit, business model fit, and organizational fit, where the latter is the glue that holds the other two together. And it says, look, we want to have, we want to make, I want to have something that can be put on a single page, given to executives, and said, you know, this, this is, this can guide you. And so it's a clarity piece. It's, it creates a shared language. So under product market fit, do you really understand your customers' unmet needs? Do you really, have you really clarified your critical assumptions? Do you have a compelling value proposition? On the business model, it may be less true for a really early stage startup because they're a single effort kind of company, but in time, a portfolio of management mindset of, you know, what, what are we developing and what do we have on the market? You need to be constantly thinking about life cycle related issues there of what's new, keep experimenting, bringing new things along, some of which will graduate to the market, some of which won't. And then the second category in the business model fit is digital enablement. There will be a digital play in any number of things. And you need to think about that. It's, and then finally, there's the business model itself. And in the middle, I, you know, I, uh, Richard, you and I were talking about this the other day. I, I used to have in the middle box of the organizational fit, I called it adaptive mindset. And it's, that's the title that's in the article that uh, we've mentioned. And, and it's true, but it's sort of fluffy words. And I've been trying not to have fluffy words in this three by three. And so I was listening to something, uh, a talk uh, by Hal Gregerson. Uh, recently. And I've always loved, uh, he and Clayton Christensen and uh, Jeffrey Dyer wrote The Innovator's DNA, both an HBR article and a book. And what's so powerful about it is, and, and this is Gregerson's big theme, is asking good questions. And so the idea is, I, so I renamed the middle box on the middle column, Innovator's DNA. In, out of respect for the idea that you need to lead with questions, you need to then observe and network and experiment and then pull those all together with what he, he and they describe as associational thinking. That's, you know, that's a big, let's come back to that in a subsequent, let me finish the three by three. But then above that, I've got external inflection points and beneath that I've got internal checkpoints. So external inflection points is really uh, builds on the theme that in a world where competitive advantages can be increasingly fleeting, you've got to keep your eyes on the horizon to see what might be changing so you can catch the trends before they become tsunamis. And then in the internal checkpoints, this is really builds on Rita McGrath's 
discovery-driven planning, which is, you know, you, the focus needs to be on learning with these newer projects, especially this kind of startups that, you know, you have there in the cohort, which is that you can't guarantee anything. You can't predict. And so what you do is you identify the key assumptions. You, you think about the future, what you believe and hope it'll look like, and then you back it up with a set of assumptions that you have these checkpoints where you review the status of the learning and turning the learnings, the assumptions into knowledge. And so that's a way to reduce the risk and guide projects as they come along internally. At the same time, you're keeping your external focus and then you have this sort of questioning uh, innovators DNA kind of mindset that's kind of at the heart. There's a reason it's in the middle of the three by three. And, and it feels like going beyond this, with this type of tool, it's not just obviously that like every great strategy should be um, about a piece of paper and a plan. It's about execution. And you're breaking that down into sort of a more detailed way about how you go about things. Yeah, so the there's a, I, I think one of them, when, when I've thought about what are the, I call them the five things that management teams and investors and board members don't get right. I think the first thing is that executives are frequently too busy. And I think sometimes board members ask for activities that just keep them busy. Er, And, you know, the most recent article, uh, cover article of HBR magazine was on the busyness trap. And, you know, so there's a need to slow down and think about what really matters. I think the second thing that's really critical is if you look at the failure rates, I mean, my God, 72% of all new products, you know, fail, flop, fail to meet expectations. There's a Christensen study done by that he and others did that said some 75% of new products fail to meet profitable, viable status and are pulled off the market. Another study that he and others did said, you know, look, in one year they looked, there were over 20,000 new products and only 92 reached 50 million or more of revenue and sustained that level of revenue in a second year. And then the final metric uh, from CV Insights says, you know, of, of the number one failure reason for startups is, the, it's 42% of the failures is sure they solved for a problem. They just didn't solve for one where there was an unmet market need. And so when you when you look at those kind of failure rates, and this is, you know, that's why there aren't more great companies, is these kind of failure rates are the norm. They're the majority. I did a webinar like a year and a half ago, and I asked, I did a poll question, and I asked four questions. Does your company have frank conversations? Do you understand your customers' unmet needs? Are you mapping out, testing, and validating your value proposition and your business model? 54% to 62% of the respondents said no to those various questions. You know, like, what are you doing? And so there's a bit of me that gets a little tart because, again, as I said, you know, it's not like there's not a lot of smart, ambitious people playing in both the company management teams and the investor world. But like, why are you, why are you keeping conventional wisdom approaches when faced with those kind of failure statistics? I mean, that should be just a, like getting a, 
ice water thrown in your face. It's like, oh my God, you know, we've got to stop doing what we've been doing. That's where I think the innovators, so stop being busy is one. Number two is be more curious and humble because you have every reason to be humble given those kind of statistics. And that's where the innovators DNA mindset of asking questions and really in welcoming, um, you know, learning more and pulling insights from people. And we can come back to even that because uh, there's a great story or two to tell about, you know, how you how you the SWAT team idea that I, I've done in the past. But so I would say being more curious and humble is the second. The third thing, and this uh, Roger Martin deserves serious kudos for this. He did a HBR video in the last year that's just rocketed into the millions of views. And his comment is planning is not strategy. And so there's a phrase that's frequently used, you know, well, we have to come up with a strategic plan. And I think this is a mindset problem that speaks to all sorts of challenges, because as he points out so clearly, and and he's been he's been hammering on this for a while. And I think I think what he's done so well in the last year is he's he's continued to advance his thinking that the rest of us desperately needed to hear. And that is that planning is activities under your control at the company. It's a necessary step at the right time. So it's how many people are we going to hire to do what? How much are we going to spend on this or that, you know, R&D or manufacturing or sales? You know, what kind of facility do we need? It's it's even could be regulatory plans and reimbursement strategy plans. He calls it a laudable list of activities. The key point being they're under the control of the company. They have nothing directly to do with the dependent variable, which is customers. And as he says so well, if you want to be successful, you need to have a strategy that compels action by customers that are is in your favor. That's the whole point I was saying earlier about, you know, they're in the executives are in the persuasion business because you have no control over customers. And as Peter Drucker has said, you know, the entire purpose of your company is to create a customer. They're not going to buy anything from you and become a customer unless they first believe it's going to satisfy an unmet market need. So get it right. Then I think the fourth thing is what we said earlier about the assumptions. Really important because what that does is that that helps take you out of the strategy, the strategic planning mindset and gets you really thinking about strategy issues and you know what has to be true. And then finally, I would say it's really getting go to market right. It's it's using uh, something like the GTM roadmap as a way to get clarity and have a shared language amongst the team and the investors and the board. And then something that I'm now pulling together, which is the fifth and final piece is, you know, when I call up CEOs, they respond like I used to respond to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Richard, Kyle, we're fine. We got this all covered. No problem. <laughs> and, 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 you know, what do you say to that? Well, you know, I've just spent all these years going into companies, uncovering blind spots. And the, the, the kind of humorous part is that I got labeled as a turnaround guy for a while there uh, through about the 06, you know, 1997 to 06 timeframe. And, and what I really was becoming to go back to the Steve Jobs quote of, you know, you can connect the dots looking backwards. 
I was becoming an expert on GTM blind spots. And so the, the challenge is that, you know, most people don't see their blind spots, but we all know companies and individuals have them. So I'm developing this GTM self-assessment diagnostic, readiness self-assessment diagnostic that will allow teams, so I call it, so when the executives say that to me, I say, boy, I sure understand that. You know, and the last 10 have said that to me too. But by the way, they took this free diagnostic test and, you know, oh my God, they were surprised that, you know, because it, it, what it does is it asks questions about the three by three categories. And the expectation is that when it's done and ready to go in, in totality, you know, you'll get a scorecard back that will be green, yellow, red for each of the nine boxes. And it will tell you how ready you actually are. And that, you know, that should create some interesting conversations. Who's coming up with the score? <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. I, I, I've been thinking long and hard about that. Because, you, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the, this is really interesting because it'll be, there'll be one to five in the scorecard. <clears throat> and if you start to think about what actually is, you know, normal, good, what, like what's failure? What's a red? Well, you know, if you're never doing it, that's clearly a red. If you're rarely doing it, that's a red. If you're sometimes doing it, that's probably pretty close to a red. So, you know, at least half of the, you know, if you're doing it sometimes all the time, you know, maybe that's a yellow. Okay. But you can start to see how, you know, it, it forces a form of logic and accountability. And so imagine, imagine a management team, you know, say you've got five or seven people on the executive team, imagine they all take it. And then you get it, you get back a summary result for the team. And then you get a range, you know, here's the average for each of the nine categories. And here's the high and the low. Think of what that would tell, you know, think of a workshop where you're sitting down with the management team and you're saying, guys, you don't have a shared perception of where you are on this issue and that issue. And, and it becomes this wonderful common, you know, let, let's get on the same page together. So like, are we talking about the right issues? And do we have a similar shared understanding of those issues? You know, that's, that, that's you know, from my management team days, that's the kind of conversation that I almost never saw. And I think would be critically important to helping build more great companies. This is truly awesome, Don. You can, Kyle, you can tell why this is one of our most popular and impactful episodes or sessions we have during the program. I mean, I think every time we hear from Don, there's like new information gets shared. And there's, you know, this GTM roadmap is just so powerful. I think it's a big value add for any company who gets to use it. Uh, no doubt. And, you know, it's it's really cool because at the end of the day and, you know, something that our leader over here um, always kind of preaches, you know, even when we talk to early stage companies and not necessarily preaches, but asks, you know, like, how are you going to sell it? You know, you've got this great device, you got this great product, you got this great technology, how are you going to sell it? And it's not actually selling to Dawn's point, the product and all of its features, right? But it's, it's making sure you're doing what you need to do in those very early stages to address those assumptions, right? And then to figure out how to 
prove whether or not those assumptions are 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 you know correct and you're going in the right direction or or oh boy you know that's not it we need a pivot and we need to look at this and i think having a roadmap doing so and that assessment that you've mentioned you know all and taking your time right the busy work too it's just bringing it all together not being in that that rush taking the right steps, focusing in the right areas, right? And doing it early and often, right? And then creating and aligning your teams, right? Your executive teams with your investors, right? Making sure that everyone's on board. It's being communicated throughout. I mean, um, just everything comes together. And you, to your point, Richard, yeah, I, I, I can see the value, you know? And I think at any stage your company is at too, right? This isn't even just for early stage companies. There's so many companies out there today that have been around so many years, Don, I'm sure you probably have a take on that too, but like, you know, that are kind of looking right at the industry they're in, they're looking at themselves, what they're doing. And they're saying, we need to change. We need to shift, you know, or whatever we're doing over here. If we want to achieve that next level of growth or or at least stay relevant, right? Um, so just awesome points all around. So so this actually goes back to the SWAT team concept I mentioned briefly early on that was preceded by the what I always did, the three questions. So when I was brought in new, I would ask the questions, what's working, what's not working, and if you were in charge tomorrow, what would you do differently? And what I learned over time is that the people I would talk to, which would be the VPs and director level employees in the company, they'd all go back out in the hallways and they would talk amongst themselves and say, well, you know, I don't know this guy, but, you know, he actually seems to want to hear what's really going on here. So good people want to make a difference every day. So their energy and hope levels are, you know, starting to go up. And then I get them all together and I say, all right, guys, you know, without personal attribution, here's what I heard you say. Let's talk openly about it. Now the spotlights are on the elephants in the room. And it's, it's okay to talk about the elephants in the room mm -hmm. because it's like, you know, well, why not? You know, that's what we're here for. And then um, we immediately pivot to now, what are we going to do? And so the, the, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about psychological safety. And we've also got kind of what I consider to be a therapeutic culture these days where everybody tiptoes around and makes sure that, you know, everybody feels okay and all the rest. I'm much more focused on behaviors. And so what I've just described to you on the behavior side is, look, it's completely psychologically safe to talk about the substantive issues when I get all those people together, just like it's become safe to have, then have hallway conversations and all the rest after that. As Because now, once I had done that, and we set some goals to deal with the elephants in the room, then I would spend my time wandering around asking people, you know, you're working on this. What's not working? How can I help clear the pathway for you so you can be successful? If you have any more problems, come talk to me because I want to make sure you have a chance to be successful at that. And then what I did, this was sort of my, I started doing this 20, 25 years ago. I formed SWAT teams. Now, I originally spelled it SWAT, like the, hmm. the SWAT, the military type police that you know, descend into an emergency. But in re more recent years, I switched to SWAT, S-W-O-T, as kind of a play on the idea of you're dealing with strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And so what I, what I would encourage, they'd be voluntary, what I'd encourage the formation of 
would be two to four person SWAT teams. The only rule I had was no VPs. No VPs at all, because VPs are going to, people aren't going to talk when you know, there's a VP in the room like they might talk otherwise. And so I would say, look, guys, whatever issue you've got going on in your area that you're aware of that you think is creating either difficulties or we're losing a positive opportunity, form a SWAT team, two to four people, highly specific, measurable target goal to address. And then go deal with it. You'll get publicly recognized. Everybody will know who's on it and what the topic is. And you'll get to report on the outcomes and just what you guys figure out. You're not asking them to solve the big company strategy stuff. You're talking about, you know, what's happening on the manufacturing floor? What's happening with customers? What's the customer service problem that's not going right? You know, any number of issues. And, and then, so then, then what happens is, I mean, think, think of what that does. You get, you get all of this energy going throughout the organization because that's the stuff they know. It's the stuff they, you know, what's the classic thing about makes people disillusioned about their jobs? Uh, nobody listens to me. I can't have any impact. Well, I'm saying, you know, go for it. Don't limit yourself. And, and then it, it, the other thing is that we were talking a moment ago about the snow melts on the edges and catching trends. So they're the people that are going to know about what's really going on in this little part or that little part that's a trend. And, and the other thing that if, if you read the literature about, you know, knowledge problems. So think about all the unspoken, the tacit knowledge and the other kind of knowledge that exists in the minds, not even necessarily articulated, of all these individuals in any organization anywhere. And what these SWAT teams are doing is they're teasing out that knowledge and making it visible and explicitly done. And so it creates this incredible energy that's really fun to see. It also tells you as an executive who your up and coming management team, middle managers are, because boy, are they self-identifying in spades. And, and, and I never said this when I was actually a CEO, but the, the final piece is, by God, if your if your VP is not encouraging those sort of activities in their area, you have just learned a very valuable insight about them as well in the negative, and in the positive if they're doing the opposite. Well, I mean, ding, ding, ding! Loved every bit of that, and you know, especially because like empowering those people that are on the front lines to your point, you know, giving them something that's going to make them feel that value for that they're bringing towards the organization. And then the what upper management and leadership and the executive team, what they're going to learn. Oh my goodness. I know in the world of sales, a lot of times, right. When I was on the sales side, um, uh, if throughout the industry, a lot of the times of spending a lot of the, a lot of time talking to the people that were on the front lines where, yeah, sure, maybe they might not have been a decision maker, right? They weren't going to sign that PO at the end of the day. But what they were is they were people that knew exactly what was going on, that deserved a voice. 
And, you know, when you do it the right way and you can help them elevate their voice to the top, you know, you build a champion, you make them look like a, you know, like, wow, like, look at this person, you're giving them a voice, right? Now, granted, you know, hopefully it's being done internally, hopefully that upper management leadership is encouraging the small team. But I know from even a sales side as an outsider, you know, kind of approaching it that way too, um, is, is, is incredibly valuable in the world of business. But, um, oh, I mean, so two, two yeah. related, two related thoughts to that. Imagine the CEO, this would be me in these situations, wandering around to all these people that are first line employees or supervisor level employees, maybe they're managers. And I'm walking up to them on a regularly periodic basis saying, how's your SWAT team effort going? What can I do to help? Mm. Tell me what you're learning. So I'm getting great feedback from the front line. They're getting empowered. They know they're going to get heard. They're motivated and really, really pumped because they're going to tell their colleagues, their peers in the lunchroom and in the hallways, you know, the CEO is just asking me about. And then that relates to probably one of the most monumental moments of my career. It was 1990. I was CFO at a company, and Kirk Robb, the then CEO of Genentech, was on the board. And Kirk said, you know, I require all of my direct reports to get out in the field and talk to customers. And, and I, I, was, I was just blown away. I mean, I was, I was a financial planning guy at the time, you know, CFO and title, and, but planning and analysis guy, you know. It's like, what do you mean? You get outside the building? <laughs> and so when I became CEO, I made it a practice to travel with reps, to talk to customers, non-customers, then potential partners or partners. And what I did is I would just listen and ask questions. So, you know, the classic problem that a rep is, might have is like, oh my God, is he going to show up and like dominate the conversation? Absolutely not. My goal was to listen and learn and support their efforts to sell. And, you know, there was one situation where, you know, we drove unit sales up 39% in three quarters to the third highest quarter in the 12 year history of the company. And I was having, I was having the sales reps ask me to come back out and join them because what, what I then was hearing was I was hearing, okay, what's working, what's not working, you know, where are the innovation possibilities for the future? You know, what makes their job selling harder and how might we develop? So, so we came up with an innovation hub strategy idea and set up all these partnerships subject to a financing with these, these top uh, medical clinical sites in the country. And, and that's, that's the kind of stuff that can only come from getting out and talking. And that's where I have a debt of gratitude to Kurt. Well, certainly seeing and Richard, I know you're active on LinkedIn, but the nice thing is, um, as I'm seeing a lot more CEOs, you know, at least um, talking and engaging with other, you know, CEOs throughout the industry, or that are taking a stance and and joining their teams that are on the front lines, to your point, and visiting customers, and they're sharing their experiences with the world, and you can tell, you know, how valuable. Um, that is to business. And it's interesting because I really didn't notice CEOs, you know, really posting content like that on LinkedIn and addressing, you know, those opportunities within a business to like be a part of, 
those front lines to you know, talk to other CEOs in the space and get feedback and to talk to customers. It's crazy. You never really would think that that's where a CEO would maybe spend their time. But the reality is, is if they really want to get, you know, that real understanding of what's going on, you know, the the best thing they can do is, you know, be a part of everything and what's going on. So anyways, it's, uh, it was all, all great, great points. And, and boy, uh, Richard, what a, what a treat, huh? Honestly, there's so much great knowledge to take away from this, Don. I don't know where to start, but there's a couple of things I wanted to touch on there because you you made this reference to a statistic earlier on around the failure rate of startups. But I feel like what you're talking to is like fail for the right reasons. You know, it's like figure out fast, fail fast, which they always say. But by taking this methodical approach, you can really figure that out. And hopefully we can improve the efficiency and create hopefully more great companies. And the second point I wanted to touch on quickly was you spoke there about empowerment. You know, that's a really strong thing about how you as an early stage founder or any business leader can create the right culture by empowering your team. So I think that methodical approach combined with empowering your teams to go out and take action is such a great message to put out there. Yeah, think about the two combined. You know, if you share the three by three with the entire set of employees and then you talk about the assumptions and you talk about the experiments you're running and you invite feedback, as they learn things, you've just, you've just, you've taken it from the classic strategic planning, you know, which is all mechanistic and deterministic and completely detached from the marketplace into a dynamic process where, you know, you never know exactly what you're going to learn the next day, but you're excited to get engaged and find out and then adapt accordingly. Superb. I mean, I think given all that we've discussed in this session today, I, I mean, there's probably been too much knowledge in some sense of like picking out one or two key points. But maybe if I was to ask you that particular question, if you had from your experience, you know, you know, you mentioned that particular story about the customer focus, but if you had one or two key pieces of advice to give early stage founders, what might they be? I would start with the GTM roadmap. There's nine topics in there. Make sure you understand them so that you're addressing the right issues. And that will lead to talking less about your technology and your solution and more being truly customer-centric. I mean, the problem with customer-centric as a phrase is everybody's going to say they're customer-centric. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, that's that's not... That doesn't make you customer-centric. Customer-centric is when you actually address product market fit and business model fit and don't start scaling up for growth until you really nail down your value hypothesis crisply and cleanly. Superb. Well, yeah. Um, and and Don, how, what's the best way to, for people to uh, get a hold of you? So the, my LinkedIn profile is Donald B. Hawthorne, and it's got a bunch of articles I've written, some videos of talks I've given, including for the M2D2 cohorts. Uh, and then you know, take a look at the About section and the GTM Hawthorne Experience section, because it'll give a good flavor for some of what we've been talking about in this conversation. Uh, the Article 9 is the one, Richard, that you mentioned, and why are there not more great companies? Uh, it's my currently most recent article. 
And, and then my email address is also accessible through my profile. So feel free to reach out uh, in that way as well. Oh, and I would say under the GTM Hawthorne, there's a PowerPoint presentation embedded in that uh, job experience area, as well as 21 one-page case study success stories. Super. Well, that's fantastic, Dawn. And I'll tell you right now, Richard, um, I'm waiting for uh, my Stanford business degree in the mail uh, any minute <laughs> now after this conversation, because boy, did I learn a lot. Oh, yeah. Knowledge bombs left, right and center. This has been fantastic. I mean, I can't thank you enough, Don, for coming on and sharing this information and just sharing all your insights. And I feel we are definitely going to be wanting to welcome you back soon because there's just so much to unpack here. This has truly been amazing for the audience. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, I guess that's it. So we'll sign off. But what an amazing conversation today. So once again, I'm your host, Kyle Cruz. And I'm Richard John. And that was the MedTech Impact Podcast with Don Hawthorne at GTM Hawthorne. Thanks again, Don. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Keep innovating, everyone. <laughs>